tired of ads crashing your comedy podcast party. Good news. Ad-free listening on Amazon Music is included with your Prime membership. Just head to amazon.com slash ad-free comedy to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Enjoy thousands of ACAST shows ad-free for Prime subscribers. Some shows may have ads. This is My Kind of Weird, a podcast where two people swap and pitch three kinds of media, something watchable, something readable, and something listenable. To see if each other says at the end of the pod, that's My Kind of Weird. I'm your host, Anthony Pollock, and joining me today is horror podcaster Michael Verratti, who some of you may know from the horror podcast, Dead for Filth, and he's also a screenwriter, Michael Are you ready to get weird with me? I cannot wait to get weird with you. So, Michael, please present your Something Watchable. Uh, For Something Watchable, I chose Dario Argento's opera. You are invited to enjoy an evening of terror. Time fan of Dario Argento, and uh, people who know me personally know that it's a dangerous subject to get me started on his filmography because uh, I've always really appreciated uh, just sort of his stylistic approach to fright. And um, so frequently, people go towards the kind of tent poles in his oeuvre, like Suspiria or Deep Red. And it's not that opera is unknown; I just don't see it discussed as as frequently as those two. And I, uh, I really quite love this movie um, for as bananas as it is. It has all the strengths of a giallo, and I, I will even admit it has some of the failings of giallo as well. Uh, but there's just something opulent about it, and we don't get a lot of opulent horror movies these days. It's just really lush and big. I mean, uh, I and no, yeah. no spoilers for anybody, but there are a number of sequences that take place in an opera while it's going on. So the full opera house is packed with an audience. Uh, and, you know, you see not only the horror set pieces that Argento is known for, which include some very extravagant kills, including the very famous uh, violent uh needles taped to the eyelids a sequence that has been kind of co-opted in a lot of imagery. Uh, but mm. those, those in themselves are sort of like extravagant pieces, but then he basically built an opera version of Macbeth that is specific to this movie that then a whole audience sits and watches. And I just can't imagine uh, a studio just kind of allowing that today i mean where every everything is sort of controlled and and streamlined and like think of the budget think of the accessibility think of you know the people who don't want to get so weird and this movie issues all of that and i kind of dig Mm. that i kind of feel like back then dario argento got to that point where almost anything he wanted to make was allowable somehow i don't know how but um uh maybe uh, I mean, I don't really know what the landscape of Italian horror was like, you know, way back then in terms of, uh, like, I guess, Italian horror peers, but maybe it was because he was the the great sort of Italian uh, 
archetype when it comes to horror films. So you feel like you can't believe this was made. I, I still sort of feel like that about Suspiria with its very sort of dreamscapey imagery and things like that. So it's it's interesting that, that you feel that way. Are there any moments in this film that specifically sort of capture why you enjoy it so much? Uh, well, I, I really just... From frame one all the way through the end, I just really appreciate how evocative the atmosphere of this movie is. Uh, it's so interesting to me that later in his career, he did an adaptation of Phantom of the Opera because in a way, I feel like this is the giallo answer to Phantom of the Opera. You know, you have the uh, the rising opera star who sort of gets placed due to unfortunate circumstances. And uh, there's somebody, mysterious figure, creeping around doing people in in terrible ways. And what I think is really fascinating is how in this world of high art and uh, kind of high highbrow consideration, all of this stuff that would be considered by the mainstream to be lowbrow was going on. And I think that's very deliberate on Argento's part because, you know, for as, as rich and lush and artistic as his movies are, we know sort of the mainstream's reaction to horror films is often dismissive it, it, to treat it as if it is lowbrow content. And he sort of made a name for himself by creating these these art set pieces, you mentioned Suspiria and that sort of beginning sequence with just like the the, the production design and and that that dance academy and all of the things and, and time that went into it for then a mainstream film going audience to be dismissive of that kind of piece because it is genre. Uh, I kind of feel like opera is a, is a statement to that. He's like, okay, well, you want me to do highbrow, well, here's what happens when Dario Argento goes into the world of what you consider to be ivory tower art, you know, and I love that. And uh, I think that there's just some really, really wonderful moments in this uh, and, and really great moments of dread. I think the sequence where our lead character goes to speak to the costume designer and uh, the killer stalks her with the pair of scissors while the, like that's all going on, I think is very, very insane. And uh, like it gets me still to this day. And I've seen this movie many times. Uh, and I also think there's a brilliant set piece where um, uh, the recently passed uh, Daria Nicolota looks through a uh, eye hole and the uh, killer does something quite untoward that, that of course, leads to bloodshed. Um, and I still think about that whenever I have to look out the eye hole of a door. So I think this movie <laughs> is, is, is very, like, impactful. Um, I didn't, uh, I mean, it's the first time I've ever met anyone who, you know, they get knock uh, knock at the door. Oh, let's look through the eye hole of that door. Uh, door. It's very last century, Michael. Um <laughs> <laughs> Um, so, my something watchable is a film called Spiral. I think I saw something. There's something not right about this place. What are you talking about? There was a couple that were killed ten years ago. They knew, and they didn't say anything. You need to stop thinking that everyone's trying to get you all the time. Marshall and Tiffany are good people. Well... Which uh, people can stream by going to uh, Shutter. Um, now, I get, went into this film not uh, well. I didn't really have any expectations. I uh, didn't have any expectations beyond the sort of the press release that Shutter sent me and. 
the fact that it's a queer horror film. Right. Um, so there's a couple of things I like about this film, um, which goes to my pitch of why people should check this film out. Firstly, it's Jeffrey Boyer Chapman's portrayal of Malik. I'm a big fan of him. I don't know, Michael, if you checked out uh, this uh, series called Unreal. It's basically sort of the real-life uh, story of The Bachelor. It was actually written by The, the Bachelor's, um, I think, showrunner or writer or producer or something along those lines. So I really enjoyed his character was quite quite bitchy, which I kind of, um, but not in a negative light, just kind of very, um, very sort of outward spoken in terms of how he feels like certain cast people should be treated. So when I saw that he was in this film, I was really excited to see it. It's uh, about a gay couple that move to what is considered, uh, I guess, country America, if you will. Yeah. It's in a town where where they're not used to same-sex couples because uh, this entire film is uh, set in the 90s. And then uh, Jeff- uh, Malik, uh, Jeffrey Boyer Chapman's character, sort of witnesses uh, what appears to be a sort of ritual and then this old man who sort of approaches him uh, just after, uh, actually just before the ritual, he ends up dying a couple of days later. So the other reason I like this film is it's an interesting commentary on the sort of, I guess, the accepted homophobia that was uh, running rampant in the 90s for sure, which I guess because of, you know, shows like like Friends and things like that that sort of were, if you look back at them now, they're very homophobic. They're very, um, they kind of normalise that homophobia. And I feel like this movie, while it's a horror film, it, it sort of captures how I imagine how gay people would feel when, I guess, surrounded by straight people who aren't accepting of who they are, of who they are as as people. So um, that's that's sort of my my main pitch for that. It's uh, I think it's it's interesting in terms of how it approaches things. Uh, it's almost get out ish, but. Um, from more a uh, from a queer perspective, right? Uh, you know, I really I think that this is a fine example of queer horror uh, because of all the reasons you're saying. I mean, because when we when you use that phrase queer horror, uh, obviously there are queer there are horror movies with queer people in them, and then there are movies that are queer horror because they apply in some way to the queer experience. And I think this movie really, really. Um, approaches that idea of of being othered in your your community and feeling like you are uh, an outsider uh and and something that's very very uh real for a lot of people in the lgbtqia plus community growing up in small towns uh growing up during times where uh it was not widely accepted and that's very real still to this day in a lot of places and um his uh, Jeffrey Boyer Chapman's character's increasing paranoia in this, I think, was handled really well in a horror way, but also handled mm-hmm. really well in a real way, because I think that yeah. is something that a lot of people can relate to. 
I found it also quite shocking. Uh, I'm not going to spoil what what actually happens later on. Um, there is a death that happens close to his character, and uh, his character Malik is at the end of it all is uh, is like says to um, Marshall, who is uh, Lachlan Munro's character, and Lachlan Munro is is sort of that character actor that always plays the um, that that sort of character where you they're always up to something. You don't know what, but they're always up to something. And uh, he's just like, why are you doing this to me? And he uh, the response is, we do this to you because you're different and no one will miss you. And I'm just like, holy shit. That is a uncomfortable realisation and, I guess, truth about how people, I, I guess, who have differences as a whole are treated by, you know, sort of the uh, people with nuclear family values. Well, in, in setting this movie in the 90s was certainly no mistake. I mean, even though those attitudes are still prevalent in parts of the world uh, still today, uh, I, I definitely see sort of what they were doing um just historically speaking with what was going on with the the queer community at the time, because uh, at that point in the nineties, we're coming right off of the AIDS crisis and, and quite literally in uh, the U S it was sort of marked upon by our government at the time that there was inaction because the air quotes, right. Kind of people weren't dying. And that's literally what's being said here. Uh, Nobody will pay attention because you're not the right kind of person that's dying. So we can get away with this. And so I think that that's a very, very clear cultural uh, and historical parallel that's being drawn in this moment. Yeah. I, I feel like the biggest unfortunate about this film isn't the film itself it's the fact that a film of a very similar name is about to come out and because it's related to saw i have a fear it's going to bury this film which i feel like is really unfortunate in terms of because it's two of the same names that people aren't going to discover this film as much as they probably should if they haven't already and i feel like that's a disappointing thing yeah, I think so too. I think especially because we still don't see as much uh, queer representation uh, on screen in genre films as, as I think that we need. Um, every single release that's out there that's doing doing uh, serviceable stories needs to be found because there are people out there who need it. Uh, but I just think this is like one of those uh, circumstances where... Um, you know, the industry is, is its own uh, nebulous beast sometimes. And, and a, yeah. lot of, a lot of times you don't even get control over what your movie ends up getting titled. I'm sure the nine movies that like came out uh, that were titled La Llorona would, will, would agree, you know? <laughs> uh, certainly not shitting on the Saw movie that called Spiral that's about to come out. But yeah, it's just unfortunate circumstance. No, I'm excited about that movie too. I agree with you. It has nothing to do with the movies in question. It's just more to do with the confusion of titles. Totally. All right, Michael, present your something readable. Uh, Something readable. I chose a graphic novel called Dracula Motherfucker um, that was done by Alex DeCampi. And I'm going to grab it here just to make sure that I say the last names right. Uh, Yeah, sure. Yeah, it was Alex DeCampi and Erica Henderson. Mm. And uh, I picked this because uh, people who listen to Dead for Filth know, but I don't often get a chance to talk about, I love uh, comic books and I love graphic novels. And um, so uh, infrequently do I get a chance to to kind of shout from the rooftops uh, 
um, a, a title that is kind of lighting me up. And I'm a big Dracula fan. And this particular book is is a short story that takes place in the 1970s. And it is based on the supposition that Dracula's brides uh, had kind of had enough of his shenanigans. And... Um, <laughs> It's bullshit, if you will. Yeah, definitely. And they and they trapped him in his coffin, and they've been living kind of their fabulous like disco lives throughout the seventies. And uh, some uh, failing actress in Hollywood d- revives Dracula with the hopes that his power will um, imbue her with like her own kind of new fame and revitalize her career and all of this. And this poor. Mm. Uh, this poor uh, photographer who gets caught in the in-between. It's kind of a very short and sweet graphic novel, and it's illustrated in a very pulpy sort of fashion. So I think it hits like a lot of, uh, of, of marks and checks a lot of boxes, depending what kind of horror you're into. If you like a good old-fashioned EC comics, it's got that look, it's got that feel, so it's got sort of that kind of classic aesthetic, but also it's got a bit of exploitation cinema in there because it's set during like the gritty 1970s Los Angeles. Mm -hmm. Um, But there's also like a little bit of sexy European intrigue, what with the Brides of Dracula. And then it kind of gets weirdly metaphysical and almost like heavy metal magazine with this like spiraling colors and how they represent, yeah. How, yeah, and how they represent Dracula himself is not so much as like a Christopher Lee or a Bella Lugosi, but more so this sort of like dark spiraling cloud of fangs and eyes. Uh, and yeah. I, I love that because culturally, the idea of Dracula is just so big at this point. The idea that like it, 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 it's so monolithic. How do you represent that and still make it scary to people? Well, then you merely just represent it sort of as a non-corporeal idea. And I love everything that's going on here. And I'm speaking as someone who tends to like a lot more structure and setup to the stories I read. I sort of love that this just jumps into it, gets hella weird, gets hella crazy, and then taps the bell out. I was just like, I feel totally satisfied. Um, and if you really dig Dracula uh, or vampire stories set in the 70s, like Dracula AD 1972 or Blackula, uh, this, I think, will will really please you. Yeah, especially since um, I wasn't even going to talk about this, but um, just that last comment you've made is the sort of with Dracula stories, there's kind of there's Dracula in the 1800s or the early 1900s and then there's this huge jump and then suddenly we're in the 80s or 90s. It's very rare that you see something uh, Dracula-ish in the sort of the 70s and it's very rare that you're sure, even if you do, that it celebrates that era to its fullest extent. I definitely agree with um, the way and how Dracula is portrayed. It's almost sort of like a... It's kind of, you know, how Dracula has been portrayed in the past in terms of being uh, suddenly Bram Stoker's Dracula in terms of how he can, uh, he has the ability to, I guess, transmogrify into different types of beasts and animals and things like that. It's almost like that, except he's, it's more like the Dracula that uh, is portrayed here is more like a, almost like darkness itself, like a, like a, I don't know, a shadow, if you will, that can kind of envelop the character um, that that he's trying to basically prey on. So that was uh, that was interesting, and I, I really, I found the sort of revenge paradigm 
really uh, fulfilling at the end, to be honest with you. Um, and I, I kind of, you feel sorry for, I can't remember the character's name, but the um, the guy who was at the centerpiece who acts as the audience surrogate to all the what the fuckery he's experiencing, um, he ends up as sort of the the play thing for Dracula's hot ex-wives. I kind <laughs> of, up until that point, I didn't really, I felt really sorry for him. It's just kind of like, oh, okay, he's going to live forever and he's he's got that. Okay, if only. <laughs> but, you know, it's interesting about that character too. His name is, uh, the character's name is Quincy Harker. And, of course, that's not a mistake because it's, uh, it. Jonathan Harker, of course, is is the man who goes to Transylvania at the beginning of Bram Stoker's novel. Oh, uh, right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And yeah. brings him back. And then if you recall, and later in Dracula when Van Helsing kind of puts together the posse of vampire hunters, which, you mm-hmm. know, depending which version of uh, the, the, the story you are seeing translated to screen or whatever, they tend to leave a lot of them out. But another one of the group is a Texan named Quincy Morris. So I think that the... Uh, this this person is probably inferred to be a relative of either Quincy Morris or Jonathan Harker descended down to swinging uh, 1970s L.A. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> I, I saw a bit of pulp influences there in Erica, is it Henderson? Is that it? Um, yes. So yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah. Um, I kind of felt uh, it was a bit, black exploitation influences in there as well, kind of like a melding of the two in, in terms of uh, the colours, like the coloration definitely. And, yeah, did you get that? Or Oh, absolutely, I think so. I mean, that's why, you know, at the end I, I referenced uh, Blackula because I think that on – uh, it, all of these sort of 70s references, and the, you you hit the nail on the head with the kind of colour palette of this book uh, – yeah it is very clearly evoking a time and a style of film. If, if this movie Dracula, if this graphic novel Dracula motherfucker was a movie, it would not be like at the multiplex. It would be playing like at a 42nd street theater or a grindhouse movie theater. And I don't think we would want it any other way. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. It's a, it, in a way it's uh, it's a bit of a allegory for how, black people would have felt back in those days in terms of um, like uh, from uh, uh, Quincy's um, uh, trying to get, uh, because he's a paparazzi trying to get uh, of, uh, you know, dead people and corpses, I guess you could say he's trying to get that, that next big score so that he can, you know, pay his bills for the next couple of months. And every time he wants, he thinks he's got some great big opportunity. He's kind of like, or they'll pay me like a couple hundred dollars, and which you know back then is a lot of money. And it's just, uh, uh, and the editor is like, "We'll give you twenty five bucks, kid. So, uh, take it or leave it." Um, and then to the uh, to him being pursued, feeling like trapped, cornered in, if you will, the various forces uh, beyond his control, manipulating his life and his struggle, um, are there as well. Well, and you know what I think is really interesting and, you know, uh, it's while I don't personally want to speak for the black experience, what I do think is really interesting about uh, the construction of this novel and how Quincy's story runs parallel to the brides is like the brides literally turn against Dracula because 
he is trying to dictate everything about their lives where they have no autonomy of their own and wants to make them reliant on him. And it's sort of like a smash the patriarchy moment. They're like, no, we're, we're rising up and taking back. And then we see that at the beginning. And then as we watch how the patriarchy treats Quincy until uh, they come into his life as well, because every time he tries to get a foot ahead, he gets pushed backwards. And it's sort of like the, it, it, what I do really think is fascinating is how it, it highlights power struggles and how much like in the discussion of Spiral, uh, it's all about how the those who are in control of the world can quite easily ignore those who are not. And I think that's really fascinating. What's even more fascinating is you chose this book and I chose that movie. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> All right. So my something readable is a little novella, which a lot of people have come to know as a movie, but we'll talk about the novella um, because it's my podcast, um, <laughs> um, is uh, The Mist by one Stephen King. And if you haven't heard of Stephen King, go to Wikipedia. Um, <laughs> for me, I read uh, The Mist as a, uh, as a short story in a collection of uh, Stephen King short stories. Um, I believe uh, you can still get it somewhere. I can't remember what the collection is called. But that said, it was one of the stories in here. Um, I found it really, uh, I mean, you know, I'd, I'd read all sorts of Stephen King by that point. I was 15 uh, and kind of, you know, early 2000s, just kind of getting into anything horror related. So at that point, I'd I'd read um, Pet Cemetery. I'd read um, sort of the, the darker half and all those sorts of things. Um, but uh, when it came to uh, this short story, I found it really inspiring how I, th- I believe it only went for about 30 or 40 pages, created this very visceral world located in, you know, a shopping center of all places where everything was going wrong. You've got, you know, people and uh, end of the world conspiracies, conspiracy theorists. You've got people who are trapped in this um, in this sort of this uh, shopping center while the outside is killing anyone who goes out there. So people, you know, religious nuts are propping up in the group, and it's a very sort of telling short story of, I guess, the the human experience as a whole in terms of how bad humans can get it's almost uh, a commentary uh uh on I, I guess when push comes to shove the the uh i guess the the real nature the true nature of someone can come out and how they react to being under under pressure and un, under stress uh is definitely revealed in this book there's also a sex scene in the um, the refrigerator, so you know, <laughs> they, you know, which didn't make it to the film, as uh, as we all know. But um, I I found it uh, an interesting read. Have you ever read it, Michael? I have. Uh, I'm a huge Stephen King fan, and uh, I kind of similarly to you. When I discovered his works, I burned through uh, them quite quickly early on and then started to kind of parse them out over the course of my life. Uh, But I I remember really digging this story because of uh, that sort of Twilight Zone feel of it. You know, the idea that the monster is outside, but the real monsters are in here and and those are the people. And um, I, I... 
still like I mean I think the movie of course gets gets a lot of things right about how this this is constructed because I know exactly the sort of supermarket that Stephen King describes in the story I grew up in uh, rural America. I would probably went to the very kind of supermarket he described. And yes, it would be a hellish nightmare to be trapped in those just with like other people, let alone with monsters outside. <laughs> uh, but I think it's a, it's a brilliant story about paranoia and what you said. It's really about um, kind of the human condition and uh, the, the not nice parts of it. Yeah. And I feel... Um we're kind of talking about the movie now anyway, so we might as well continue. Um, <laughs> we, uh, I found that all the, the sort of the innuendo that King put into the novella um, is they the screenwriters uh, expertly managed to capture in the film, such as the not, the, the not being able to see um, what's actually in the mist, the discussion around um, how there had been army men that had come through the town earlier that week. You actually have an army guy in the film. So um, I feel like if you leave enough, uh, I guess, uh, narrative, like even just basic narrative around things that can be explored when it's adapted to film and for that film for you to actually be seeing something in the flesh of what you read all those years ago or even just earlier that day then it's uh it's very telling of just how good that story is yeah i mean i didn't uh, purposely mean to bring up the film but it's it's just funny because i remember reading this this novella and it, it was uh so um impactful it left it left a uh quite a mark because of just how stark um, King describes it, that later when I saw the film, because um, you know how it is. Sometimes you read a book and then like years later they make a movie and you're like, oh, I should go see that because I read the book. And you kind of remember and it's like satisfying and, and of that. But like it's exactly like you said, it, it took me right back to reading it. And that's a rare experience. Mm-hmm. Even, even, yeah, even knowing the differences and there are differences. Oh, yeah. Yeah, totally. Um yeah, and yeah, it's uh, I'm I'm trying to talk about this without referencing the fog, and it's really hard not to. <laughs> um, <laughs> so, um, uh, uh, tell me about your something listenable, Michael. <laughs> okay, uh, well, the something listenable. I must confess that uh, one, when I sent this to you, I actually had a moment where I was like, "Wait, was I supposed to send him a song or a whole album?" Um, and I think I just mentioned the song, and the song I picked with Zombina and the Skeletons Nobody Likes You When You're Dead The album it comes from is Taste the Blood of Zombina and the Skeletons. Uh, and I recommend people listen to both. And if you're not familiar with Zombina and the Skeletons, they are sort of a pop punk uh, horror band who uh, really relies heavily on uh, the music of, or like just kind of horror movie references 
and drive-in kind of era horror movies. And uh, Nobody Likes You When You're Dead is a song about a girl who uh, kind of realizes that um, no one paid attention to her until she was dead. And she was a beauty queen and now she's not, but now she's getting more attention than before. It's very dark and very bizarre, but it's also kind of like an up-tempo number. Uh, I've always wanted to use it to open a film. Uh, Zombina, I know you're listening. Please, please give me those uh, rights. <laughs> um, but no, I've just always really, really liked this band and I've always really liked this song and I really like this album. And for some reason, even amongst horror fans who'd like a little bit of crossover uh, and horror punk, they they don't seem to be as known in certain circles. They're from Liverpool, mm-hmm. England. Uh, I, I discovered them when I was doing a lot of stuff on the uh, horror convention circuit, uh, and I think they're great. I'm, I'm a huge fan. Yeah, I was actually surprised that uh, I hadn't heard of them before. When you first sent them to me, I'm just like, oh, yeah, I've heard of them before. But when I listened to them, I'm just like, actually, I haven't. I've never heard this band. And how have I never heard this band? Um, it's, uh, uh, I love the, it's very, um, it's very fun. It's very, it's very punk rock, um, sort of very, uh, I would say, 80s punk rock. Um, uh, but it's, it's very much has an underground aesthetic to the to the group um i had i listened to about 10 songs of theirs on youtube are they are they big or or within uh, i guess their fan base or um see the funny thing is is i always thought so or maybe i was just running around with like some hardcore zombina fans um (laughs) because when when i discovered them uh was through a friend of mine who i actually i used to work at a horror movie magazine with and she was she was super into it, and she would travel around uh, and go to like you know a lot of basement shows and underground shows and punk shows, and I was doing a lot of the same. And she introduced me to them, and uh, I got really into their work. And uh, the Taste the Blood of Zombie and the Skeletons album actually features uh, artwork from a man named Art Baltazar, and Art Baltazar has gone on to be a DC Comics. Uh, artist and uh i've met him a number of times when i've been doing speaking events at comic-con i've talked to him about zombina and so like i guess just like in my brain and like in the world that i walk among zombina is a thing but then i have like been in instances like this where i'm talking about horror punk or horror rock or metal or whatever and i'm like oh yeah like zombie and the skeletons and people are like what are you talking about so um Are they big? Maybe. And it's like not one of those things where I was like, I was into that band before anybody knew it. No, like, I'm not saying that at all. I'm just saying that, like, I, I've been a fan for a while and I just thought that people were and I assume people are. So, Because <laughs> mm, mm. I listened to that song you sent me to check out and uh, when I found a video of it on uh, YouTube, it only had 4,000 views and I'm just kind of like, this doesn't sound right. Um, but, uh, hey, it might be one of those, uh, you know, the, the punk rock aesthetic and the fan base, especially underground punk rock, has this thing where uh, not all of them will necessarily listen to stuff online, you know? So, um, well, it's yeah, interesting to... It's interesting, too, because you, you you mentioned the punk rock aesthetic, and I don't know if you've noticed this, but there are horror fans who, like, when their horror love goes over to music, it's, like, horror metal only or horror punk only. So I think that, like, it further divides into these small sub-pockets that... Uh, mm. Yeah, sub-genres. Well, this uh, kind of relates. 
My something listenable is an album by Wednesday 13, which is called Transylvania 90210, semicolon Songs of Death, Dying and the Dead. It's still back at me. It started to breathe and then it started to bleed. The moon cracked open and it started to flow. Now, that said, this is far from a depressive album. Um, <laughs> I actually think it's a lot of fun. Uh, it's great for anyone who's uh, into that sort of horror punks uh, subgenre. Uh, it has a bit of heavy metal and goth metal influences thrown in the mix as well. Um, for those who aren't familiar with uh, Wednesday 13, Wednesday, the, uh, the singer slash guitarist who writes all the music, he was in a band called uh, The Murder Dolls, which uh, had members of Static X and Slipknot in it. At one point, he also used to, uh, well, when he first started, he was the singer of a band called uh, Frankenstein, uh, Frankenstein Drag Queens from Planet 13. So if that doesn't give you enough to let you figure out on your own that uh, the band is about horror... I don't know what else to say. Um, <laughs> other, other than it's a great, it's a great fun album. It has uh, lots of great sort of. Uh, uh, the lyrics are very horror centric. The uh, Wednesday has gone on record saying before that he's he's very much uh, into sort of your eighties and nineties and uh, sort of very much uh, horror from you know uh, back in sort of like your, your your Hammer House of Horror days and those sorts of things. So from the forties, fifties. 60s and before so you'll get lots of uh uh great references in this uh in this album i think um the best reference that and most recognizable one you'll find on the song uh post mortem boredom which is a fun title uh (laughs) it references last house on the left um uh, with uh, swapping the advertising campaign from it's only a movie to it's only a recording. <laughs> so, um, yeah, there's lots of fun things like that. If you're into Poison, they throw in the look what the bat's dragged in, which is instead of look what the cat's dragged in. So it's lots of great fun. What did you think of the album, Michael? Uh, I quite enjoyed this album. Uh, I really, uh, you know, especially because I knew that we were also going to be talking about Zambina. Uh, I I was like, wow, what great synergy. Because both of these bands, in their way, really pay homage to um, horror movies of a, specific, of a specific era. I mean, to look even at the track listing of this album, there's a song called, <laughs> called, called I Walked With a Zombie or like The House <laughs> by the Cemetery. And that's great. Or, you know, The Ghost of Vincent Price. Um, and, yeah. and the title track, I actually really, really enjoyed the Transylvania 90210 uh song itself, which I want to point out for people who don't know, uh, there was a period of time where Elvira wrote a couple like young adult novels with John Paragon. Yeah. And in yeah, one of the, those. yeah. And one of the books was called Transylvania 90210. 
uh, hey, with all the homages on this album, it wouldn't wouldn't even surprise me if there's even some kind of really even some weak connection to it. So yeah, it, that would not surprise me at all. No, I love it. Uh, you can tell uh, that Wednesday Nineteen loves uh, horror movies, and yep. really, and this is like you know everything. Uh, that that they're, this this album is all about. So I, I was into it. I had a good time. And in fact, I listened to it a couple times. I listened to it when you first sent it. And then in preparation for our sit down, while I was just kind of getting ready and setting up my microphone and things, I was playing it again. So it's kind of like a cool jazz up for uh, a, a podcast album. <laughs> yeah, it used to be one of those albums that uh, I think it was about, uh, when did it come out? 2005. So I would have been 20. Jeez, that's a scary thought. Um, <laughs> it was one of those albums I listened to uh, as I was about to go out, um, go out clubbing or go out go out for a drink. I just feel like it's got this really sort of party vibe to it. Yeah, I thought it was great. I, I uh, must confess, I, I knew about Wednesday 13, but I had not listened to this album, and I really I appreciate that um, you introduced me to it. Great. Now let's do the verdicts. So, Michael, were any of my... Uh, picks, you're kind of weird. Um, I mean, I enjoyed all three of the things that you picked, but if any would rise above for me, it's going to be the mist because I can never get enough Stephen King. And I think this is Stephen King firing on all cylinders. Um, I think that he is truly a master of a great short story that kind of leaves you wondering and this is a, a prime example forget the movie forget the tv series although both are, are really you know worth a look um this takes it back to basics it's true human paranoia it is uh it is that kind of slice of americana that he's so good at it's uh kind of calling the human condition into uh into question and uh, i i dig that and i think that it, you look at something like spiral and how spiral works on calling the human condition into question and paranoia. And it's sort of like, Oh, there is not really uh, an arena of horror that was not influenced by Stephen King's touch a little bit. And I love that. So the mist, the mist is definitely my kind of weird. These are all my kind of weird, but that's like, that's the the crown of the, of the weirdness for me. (laughs) But Jewel, um, not to say that all of his short stories are good. We'll have to talk about Stephen King's Tiger another time. <laughs> um, that, that was a thing. Um, uh, Michael, do you have something you want to ask me? Yeah, I mean, I would like to know of the ones that I introduced to you. What? What? Uh, I'm just going to reverse the question because I think the whole point is: uh, did did either of us take something new away? Uh, what did you dig or not dig about uh, the things I brought to you? Uh, I was not aware of opera, so I, spoilers, or not really spoilers, but um, uh, kind of, uh, you know, being transparent here, I didn't get a chance to uh, watch opera because I couldn't find it. Um, The Tubi, you said to me, watch it on Tubi, and it just wasn't there. Maybe the Aussie Tubi Mm, uh, content mm -hmm. is different, which, you know, streamers, they tend to do that. But I really enjoyed your pitch around it, so that in itself is my kind of weird. Um, As for, um, uh, I mean, I really dug uh, the, it was uh, Zombino, was it? Yeah, Zombino. And the Skeletons, yeah, yeah, I really dug that. Um. I think I'm going to try and uh, listen on Spotify next time. I actually listen to um, 
uh, an entire album from start to finish. I feel like I just got a got a smattering of different songs of theirs from different albums, so it'd be good to really get into that. And I found it quite annoying that you introduced me to a graphic novel and I start uh, I, I run a comic book website which reports on news and we put reviews up. We have about five to ten thousand readers every month and. I had not heard of Dracula Motherfucker, so that was lots of fun. So that was definitely my kind of weird. Yay! I just stumbled on that one because I'm a big Dracula nerd. Like, I, it's like it's it's upsetting, probably to some people. Like, there's Dracula all over my place. Um, so anytime I there's some new Dracula misadventure, I always have to know. Plus, uh, I love uh, I love some comic books. So. <laughs> It's always the way to be. So we're going to go on a quick sponsor break, and when we come back, uh, Michael and I are going to have a quick chat. A little culture for you there. Hello, everyone. Or good day, as your hosts might say. Producer Randy here. I edit and tinker with this podcast to make it sound lovely and smooth and soft. Just like me. I remove the erms and the pauses and the little bumps and whines and groans and the near constant sound of Anthony snorting coke. If you are listening to this podcast, and you are, then you might be interested in things like comics. I'm not. I think they're for children. But if you are then why not head on over to sodaandtelepaths.com, the sister site to this podcast. At sodaandtelepaths.com, you will find all the latest on comics, science fiction, and horror. And there are many, many interviews with writers and other people who've never had a real job. So head on over to sodaandtelepaths.com and make me proud of you. Don't let me down. So, Michael, you've obviously done a bit of screenwriting. You run a horror podcast. For those of you who aren't familiar with you and I guess what you've done previously, could you like to um, give them a bit of an idea? Yeah, um, I first and foremost am a screenwriter. I uh, have worked quite primarily in the horror genre and I've written uh, a number of independent horror films. Uh, but I also do a lot of television here uh, in the U.S. I've written a lot of television thrillers as well as holiday movies. Uh, I, I do occasionally step outside of the genre for a little family fun. Um, and I've, I've done uh, Christmas movies and thrillers, and I do a fair bit of directing these days as well. Uh, I have directed a handful of queer horror shorts, uh, including a sh- uh, one that played pretty much around the world, uh, called The Office is Mine. It uh, played at uh, Mardi Gras in Australia, actually, um, uh, I, as well as a Halloween slasher short called uh, Halloween Trick. Uh, a lot of people who know my directing and writing work um, know that I work on a show called The Boulet Brothers Dragula, which is a show that is sort of like the intersection of horror identity and drag. Um, and it is a, 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 a we, we seek to find the world's next uh, super monster. And I started working on the show in season three. Uh, I was a writer and a director for the show, as well as one of the guest judges. Uh, 
and yeah, I, I wrote and created Dead for uh, I created and curated Dead for Filth, which is a show that I hosted all about the intersection of queer identity and horror. Where for a hundred episodes, I talked to different queer uh, horror uh, creators and actors and performers and allies. Uh, I also do a lot of live talks and writing on uh, queer horror out in the world. So uh, I'm I'm a little bit of everywhere all at once. That's that's kind of what I do in a very jumbled nutshell. <laughs> <laughs> now you run the podcast called dead for filth um i'm kind of gonna steal something from that podcast for my sure. next question why horror <laughs> the question um <laughs> why horror well i can answer that in two ways uh for me personally um it, it's because horror it is ultimately the most powerful of genres i think i i when horror is done correctly, it, it really can do things that no other genre can. And by that, I mean, it, it is, it's by definition a genre of, of the subversive, where you can use this dark lens of the fantastic to address things that otherwise in the mainstream we may not be quite ready to deal with. You can disguise it as a monster. You can dis disguise it as an allegory. And in, in doing so, face your fears and get catharsis out of it. And I think there's something really powerful and exciting about that. And all throughout history, we've watched as horror has done that. Uh, you know, during the time that Mary Shelley wrote Frankenstein, uh, the debate of God versus science was raging, you know, across the Western world. And she literally wrote a movie about uh, what happens when man plays God using science? Uh, Godzilla is uh, born in the aftermath of the dropping of the atomic weapon. Uh, during the Middle Eastern conflicts, during the Bush administration, we see a rise in torture porn, if, if, to use the phrase, uh, movies like Saw and Hostel. Horror has always been the mirror of society. And uh, when people, you know, when I was talking about opera, how people tend to like to think of it as lowbrow, I always say no. Uh, not if you're really paying attention. Horror is actually often the truth. It may just be a truth that you don't want to look at. Um, and for me personally, when I was growing up, I was just, uh, I was originally sort of a scaredy cat. I didn't like uh, anything that seems too spooky. I would run and turn off the TV if the music got too intense, too much to the chagrin of my parents. Uh, and then one night I uh, saw that they were playing a double feature of uh, Attack of the Killer Tomatoes and Return of the Killer Tomatoes on a show called USA Up All Night, which was a, a hosted uh, kind of creature feature double uh, show that they would show on Friday and Saturday nights at the uh, in the late 80s and the early 90s. And uh, I was just kind of obsessed with the idea of killer tomatoes. What is that? What, and I, I made my mom uh, let me stay up and she was very, you know, sweet about it. And uh, I watched both of those movies and it was sort of like this weird baptism by, by strangeness because by morning, everything was different for me, for me because I realized that these movies were not like the movies that they were playing at the movie theater. They were not like the movies my friends were talking about at school. And that kind of really um, lit a fire under my ass. Cause I was just like, wait, there's a whole other kind of movie out there that feels strange and that feels forbidden. And I want to know about it. And so I then kind of set out and spent the rest of my life looking for those weirdo movies and they've kind of become my world. <laughs> <laughs> I 
So let's talk about those weirdo films. So uh, for me, um, there's there's been some really odd horror films that have come out, um, you know, in the last couple of decades. Um, uh, what is the strangest horror film that you have seen of late? Um, doesn't have to be a brand new horror film. And why do you think people should check it out? Uh, the strangest horror film I've seen of late, I actually just watched uh, a horror film from 1986 called The Seventh Curse uh, that uh, is, a, I believe, a Hong Kong horror film starring Chow Yun-Fat. And um, it was on Midnight Pulp, which is sort of a, uh, is a horror streaming service. I don't know where globally it's available, um, but they sort of curate the kind of uh, more transgressive horror movies or like in a lot of foreign films. And I, someone had just mentioned the title to me and they said, this movie's outrageous and uh, you're not going <laughs> to believe And they were like, you're not going to believe it. And, I, and I'm at this point sort of very seasoned in the way that I'm like, uh-huh, sure, whatever. And then I watched it and it, it was outrageous and I couldn't believe it. It was just, I, I, I don't even know how to describe this film other than, um, the lead character is in uh, the jungle and runs across like this, this uh, satanic cult or this like devil worshiping cult. And he gets a blood curse placed upon him where every so often, like one of his veins just pops like, like a little, he has this like eruption on his skin. And when the seventh vein erupts, then he'll drop dead. So he and his like gang of misfits head back into see if they can reverse the curse, if you will, before his like final vein explodes. Uh, and it, it's as gor- <laughs> gory and nonsense as it sounds. It's, it's like a little bit of evil dead meets, um, meets Peter Jackson's uh, dead alive brain dead uh, or, and, all through this kind of like Hong Kong lens, because yet of course there's like high flying martial arts and stuff. But then all of a sudden, like there's a weird practical effect where a, a skeleton is just chomping at someone's face while his veins are popping out and oozing all over the place. I was just like, what is this movie? Why do I love it? And how come I've never seen it before? So that, and I just watched it last week. So the fact that I'm still discovering things tells is, is really proof that uh, there's, there's so much out there. There's a world of movies out there to find. It can't be anywhere near as bad as Black Sheep. I love Black Sheep. What a good thing. <laughs> <movie. laughs> oh, there's um yeah, there's a lot of strange horror films out there that um involves animals. I think there's another one called I saw it years ago. I might get the the name wrong, but I think it's called Poultry of the Damned or something like that. Oh, oh no, no, no. Just uh, poultry geist, chicken of the chicken. Of, geist, of, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh dear, oh dear, oh dear. Um, uh, do, <laughs> I was going to say, here's a little bit of trivia for you about poultry geist, because not only is it a movie, not a lot of people have heard of, but and this is a staggering bit of information. A few years ago, probably a decade ago now, MSN did a list of the top 10 civil rights horror films and poultry geist is on that list because it's one of the only movies to ever address animal rights and that's it's so like this bizarre deep cut movie about living chicken nuggets attacking people like it's (laughs) but but recognized by msn you know (laughs) oh dear oh wow 
oh, wow. <laughs> I've kind of got this image in my head of, you know, walking into the Peter headquarters and they've got that film on constant repeat. <laughs> uh, <laughs> um, switching gears for a bit, like you're touching on with horror, and I feel like science fiction is like this a bit as well, is that you can address issues within a society without necessarily addressing the issues in society. You can use things metaphorically, you can use them as allegories, whatever you want to call it. Do you feel that with sort of the rise of more, uh, I guess, queer uh, horror films that the right stories are being told now or do you feel like that's still a step in the in the creating queer horror films that has been skipped um well the answer is is yes and no it's a tricky question right because i think that we're at a place where even 10 years ago a movie like spiral getting financed let alone being made available on a on major streaming platform that is owned by uh, AMC, which is a big network, w- would not have been likely. Um, and but like and so you know you've got movies like Spiral or, or Rift uh, or um, Midnight Kiss, which Blumhouse did for Hulu. Um, yeah. Those all uh, feel you know those all are starting to take a step into the queer horror space. And, and, and there have been queer horror films before those uh, as well. And, and what happens is like now the visibility is just getting bigger and we're getting bigger and bigger platforms releasing them. But does that mean then that there's not a lot of work to be done? No, absolutely not. There's still a lot of work to be done uh, because one story, one movie truly can't represent everybody in a community. I mean, when you look at, uh, the acronym of LGBTQIA. That's a, a lot of letters, a lot of identifiers that each speak to yeah. a, a very different uh, lived experience. And some people are just barely getting represented and some people haven't been represented yet at all. And so in the work has to continue that even as we're starting to see, yes, more gay male driven horror films or more, you know, lesbian driven horror films, we need trans horror films and we need bi horror films and we need non-binary yeah. horror films and some, some kind of mishmash of, of all of them and, and uh, you know, things that we haven't even touched upon because it, it it's, it's still a long way to go. But yeah. I, th- I think that people are becoming more aware that there's a need, not that there wasn't always a need, but we just needed the people in, in, in the positions of power uh, to pay attention. And, and I feel like there's been a shift and, and new people are taking those spots. So hopefully we're in the right direction. But, you know, as with anything, you can't get complacent. You have to keep asking for it. You have to keep fighting for it. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, what would you say is your favorite horror film? Or top three, if you can't pick a favorite. Oh gosh, um, you know it changes. It's it's sort of like uh, they're all they're all my weirdo um, life benchmarks because I can think of different times in my life when a specific horror movie really meant something to me, or like. Uh, so I, I always have a hard time doing a top ten list because I'm like, oh, but then you left this out, or blah 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 blah. Um, but I think. 
I mean, I always return to uh, Poltergeist, I think is a really brilliant film because Poltergeist shows that you don't have to spill any blood to tell a truly scary story. Um, and I think that it's just a brilliantly made movie. Uh, I, I, I can't pick an Argento film as evidenced by my fangirling earlier. Uh, I am a huge fan of his. Um, <laughs> at any given time, it changes. I've probably seen Phenomena the most of his movies because it's a movie that when I put it on for people, it's usually like, there's this movie where Jennifer Connelly uh, is in the hills of Sweden and she talks to bugs and Donald Pleasance is there with a monkey and there's a serial killer. And people are like, that's made up. And I'm like, it certainly is not. Now we're going to watch it. <laughs> uh, and uh, I I love that movie. Um, Night of the Creeps. Uh, there's this horror movie called Night of the Creeps that Fred Decker directed, which has always been one of my favorite horror movies. In fact, there is a series of books uh, called My Favorite Horror Movie. I think there are three volumes. And the editor of that, Christian Ackerman, reached out to different people within the genre, uh, filmmakers and writers and whatnot, and asked everybody to write an essay about their favorite horror movies. And mine was on Night of the Creeps, and it opens the, fir- uh, the second volume. And... Uh, so if I don't say that, then someone out there is going to be like, well, he wrote about it in this book. Why is he not talking about that book? Uh, yeah, I, but I do. I love that movie a lot. Uh, I always say it's like if John Hughes made an alien slug zombie movie, um, hmm. which really should sell it in of itself. <laughs> but uh, yeah, so Night of the Creeps, Poltergeist, um, an oscillating Argento pick. I'm also a huge fan of a movie called uh, Cemetery Man, uh, Della Morte, Della More, if you're in Italy. Hmm. Uh, I really just love it. I, it, it it's it, it usually people kind of conclude in that I love a good atmospheric horror film. The more lush and weird and gothic it is, the more likely you're going to get my attention. Well, Michael, thanks for letting us uh, get to know you through the, I guess, the lens of this podcast. Uh, where can people find you on your socials? Uh, well, you can find me on Twitter. It's probably the best place. It's at Michael Verratti. It's just my name. Uh, also the same on Instagram. If you're interested in Dead for Filth, uh, it is at Dead for Filth on Twitter, as well as Dead for Filth, wherever podcasts are found. I will say that Dead for Filth uh, at 100 episodes is now currently on hiatus, but there are 100 episodes of queer horror creators that you can go back and discover. The show was structured where it was... Uh, meant to be kind of timeless interviews. We rarely talked about anything too topical just so you could preserve the history of each person. Um, and uh, I, I believe she has mentioned it in interviews. So I think I'm now safe to, uh, for people who are waiting for me to return to the world of podcasts, uh, Peaches Christ and I are teaming up for a new podcast that's coming out soon. Um, and I'm very excited to be on the airwaves with her uh, because together we cause a lot of trouble and um, yeah, so that's <laughs> Almost the best type of relationships. Exactly. So that's coming. And uh, yeah, just keep your eyes and ears open. All right. That's it for us today. For those of you who haven't subscribed, go check out and subscribe to My Kind of Weird wherever you get your podcast from. And for me, my name's Anthony. My ghost has, um, my ghost has been, that's, that's uh, my guest has been. Michael Verratti. And just in the true spirit of horror films, Michael and I know what you did last summer. Thanks for listening, everyone.
Nordstrom has a special holiday treat for you. For a limited time on Nordstrom.com, get free two-day shipping in selected areas on thousands of items. Just enter your zip code on their site to see all the great items you can shop. Exclusions apply.